I watched a documentary. Uh, I'm really a big documentary fan. I love documentaries. So I watched this documentary on Netflix uh, about a chef from Argentina. And he was recounting the story of when he was younger. And he would walk the same route home from school every day. And there was always this guy um, who would drive by him with a fancy car. And the chef would try to catch a ride home with him. He tried to hitchhike with him. And the chef talked about the wonder of this man, this man's car, and the beauty of different women who would always be cycling through the front seat of this man's car. He just reeked with this almost James Bond elegance. And one day after he had caught a ride with this guy, a few days, um, he was invited over to the man's house for tea. So the chef goes over to his house and he sees the man's posh house. It's fine furnishing. He looks and he sees all of these women on his deck sunbathing in scantily clad outfits. And here's this, this eight-year-old boy, and he says, that's when I fell in love with a life of freedom. I made it my life to live in a way where I would, be, where I would not be led by any man. And so from this point on, and this influences his philosophy of cooking, he made it his priority to see any sort of influence or authority as a force which stood opposed to his freedom, to his joy, and to his happiness. And in our progressive society today, I would argue we're led by similar desires, especially in our collegiate uh, time of life that we're all in right now. We all are kind of prone towards an anti-authoritarian bent. We want to be free from constraint, free from rigid thought, and free from the burden of performance. And to some extent, this is good, because if all we are just mindless followers, no one's for that. We want people to have free thinking. We want people to have introspection and critical thought. But the danger of this anti-authoritarianism is that in practice, it's fundamentally opposed to itself. And that's because what lies underneath anti-authoritarianism is just auto-authoritarianism. It's self-authority. It's governing your own self by what you think is most important. And it's not so much that we don't want authority. It's that we want to be that authority. And that's why we have conflict. And that's why they're conflicting ideologies. And that's why you look on social media and it's so hard to get along with people uh, on the digital sphere. And here's what happens. If we allow this auto-authoritarianism of you being your own authority in all things, if everyone follows that command in their heart, it ends up with you either being disillusioned, thinking that you are due all authority and that the world must yield to you, or it leads to disheartenment and that you're frustrated and you're lonely and you feel empty. You see, this, this skewed perspective of self, it results in either a bloated ego or a bruised soul. And at our heart, we all have desires like this. We all, in different ways, want to be in control, want to have power, want to be the center of our own life. But in 1 Peter 5, as we're nearing, we, only, we have two more weeks in the book of 1 Peter, Peter is going to free us from those burdens by providing a better alternative. An alternative which is perceived to stand fundamentally opposed to anybody who has any sort of anti-authoritarian bent. In fact, what Peter's going to prescribe is the complete opposite of what our culture normally ascribes to freedom and happiness. And Peter's solution tonight, so there are funny things that I've had to talk about in 1 Peter, given the context of being on a college campus. Peter's talked about gender roles. He's talked about suffering. And here I am today to talk about a topic which would make 90% of any red-blooded college student cringe. 
And that topic is Peter's solution. It's organized religion. And I use this phrase intentionally because I know the baggage that surrounds that term. When you hear organized religion, regardless of what church you're in, flags go up, fireworks start exploding, you start looking for the nearest door. But in Peter's passage, he's fighting for redemption of that. And what we're going to look at tonight is what our churches and what our lives should be organized around. We're going to look at the structure God's put in place to help us deal with the suffering we've looked at in the past few weeks, that help us deal with hardship and the real life instead of just this insulated Christianity that we think we could experience. And this structure that we're going to look at is the church and its elders. And while these words might stir up a bevy of thoughts in your mind, we want to get at the heart of what Peter is talking about tonight, and that's this. This is what we're going to see. So we're going to see the centrality of Christ qualifies servant leaders and humble servants. The centrality of Christ, Christ, the centrality of Christ is what qualifies servant leaders and humble servants. So let's pray. Lord, we uh, ask, you say in your word um, that your word sets us firmly on your path. And there are many times where um, in setting us firmly on your path, you are gently guiding us. And then there are often times where you are forcibly picking up, up and setting us somewhere. But you do so so that we might have a solid foundation for life. And so I pray that in looking at your word tonight, both to elders and to young people, that we take heed of what you think is best for your church, what you have designed in your mercy and in your glory, and that we might see the joy of it and the benefit of it. We pray that in everything we see, we see the centrality of Christ designed to serve the Christian and to save those who are lost. So we love you, Jesus. We pray for your will to be done tonight as we look at your text. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I kind of just mentioned in my prayer, Peter is going to be talking to two specific groups of people tonight. And each of them are going to be given commandments and roles. And the first group we're going to look at tonight is this, and it's our first point. We're going to look at elders and the glorious burden. Elders and the glorious burden. I'm not sure how many of you have been involved in Christian churches for a long time where elder is synonymous with what the Bible describes elder. I know a lot of college students, uh, even me when I was in college, was more familiar with the term elder as something from like science fiction novels or cult religions. But let's look at how Peter describes an elder in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, the passage that Austin just read for us. Peter says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And so to use words that you might be more familiar with is the biblical writers use the word elder and pastor synonymously. They mean the same thing. And for anybody in here who is a grammar nerd, which is probably no one, elder is the noun and pastor is the verb. Elders pastor. That's what they do. They tend to it. And actually the Greek word for pastor is a farm word. It's an agrarian word. It means to tend to the sheep or to tend to a flock. And uh, this is actually a theme that Peter's talked about before in this book. In chapter two that we looked at 
way back when. Um, chapter 2, verse 25, he says that we were straying <coughs> like sheep, but in salvation we returned to the shepherd of our soul. And so Peter's using this language, and it's familiar to him, and this could be because Jesus, in his teaching, talked a lot about sheep and shepherds. You maybe have heard the parable of Jesus leaving the 99 sheep to go find his one sheep, Jesus calling himself the great shepherd. But for Peter, this was more than just a teaching point from Jesus. For Peter, this idea of an elder shepherd was really weighty to him. And I read this week um, that Western culture Uh, when they think about what a pastor is in kind of developed Western places where there's not persecution and where we have technology and we have money and church is kind of this nominal being in our society, that the role of a pastor is often trivialized or even made into an inconvenience. I remember uh, the one thing my wife said she wasn't going to do when she was single, she says, I'm not going to marry a pastor. Um, And I remember when I started breaking down the walls of her heart um, and she, she knew that she'd have people in her life that would look at what a pastor is doing and think, man, you don't even have a real job. And so there's this perception of what does a pastor do? Is it just a luxury? What does it even mean in our society? But the author contrasted this Western view with the weight of pastoral ministry in countries where persecution and imprisonment accompany salvation. And in those countries, in the non-Western world, there is a deep weight to the pastoral ministry and role. They understand the depth of that office. And it's that depth that Peter is talking about. And it's that depth that the original uh, audience that Peter is writing to understands. They don't know pastors who just sit in ivory towers and have nice cushy jobs reading theology books disconnected from anything. They know pastors who are caring for their church and shepherding their souls in the face of persecution. And this is why Peter opens this passage and he says, I exhort you as a fellow elder. Peter knew the weight and he knew the purpose um, and he knew this in a way which is really unique. You see, Peter was a disciple of Jesus. Contrary, or not contrary to, but just distinct from Paul, who's another New Testament author, Paul wasn't an eyewitness of Jesus. Paul wasn't one of the 12 disciples who followed Jesus around, but Peter was. And Peter was one of Jesus's kind of group of inner three, Peter, James, and John. They got this extra teaching. Jesus took them on special events and he really cared for their souls. And so Peter saw the majority of Jesus's ministry in a way that a lot of the disciples didn't even get to see. And there's this really tragic scene at the end um, of the Gospels. And that's where uh, Jesus is being crucified or he's about to be crucified and Peter is outside the walls of the city. And here's Peter, who when Jesus came to be arrested, he used a sword and he tried to cut off the ear of a soldier to stop them from arresting Jesus. And Peter says, Jesus, I will fight off all of Rome before I let them take you captive. And so the same Peter's outside the city walls and they're huddled by this fire and Jesus is imprisoned on the other side and there's this group of ladies and they look at Peter. They're like staring at him. They're like, maybe Peter has the mindset of a college student. They're like, hey, maybe I look really good today. But then they start kind of looking more odd. They're like, I think he's one of Jesus' followers. And so they kind of like get up enough confidence and they say, hey, don't you, don't you know Jesus? And Peter's like, no, no, I don't, I don't know Jesus at all. Like, no, 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 we saw you. Aren't, you. aren't you a follower of Jesus? I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know Jesus. I've never followed Jesus. And then they say again with greater certainty, no, we're certain. We've seen you with Jesus, the Galilean. 
And Peter says, you're off your rocker. I do not know Jesus. I've never followed Jesus. Stop talking to me. And then that moment that everyone might know of the rooster crowing and the prophecy being fulfilled that Jesus told Peter, you'll deny me three times. And Peter walks away when his savior is imprisoned after denying him three times, fully aware of his shame and cowardice. The good news for Peter though, is that Jesus didn't stay dead. Jesus might've prophesied that Peter was going to deny him, but Jesus also prophesied that he was going to rise from the dead. And so Jesus did. And he came to his disciples. He came even to Peter. And there's this beautiful scene in the gospel of John that I want us to listen to the interaction between Jesus and Peter. And this is where it picks up in John 21, verse 15. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Motioning to the other disciples. He, that's Peter, said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, that's Peter's uh, name, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So this is the beautiful reversal of Peter, right? From three denials of Christ sitting around a fire the night of his crucifixion to three affirmations of Christ sitting around a fire at the shore of the lake. And three times on the heels of those affirmations, Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And now Peter writing to other pastors is using the exact same language Jesus used to Peter, calling them to shepherd the flock of God. And you see, what changed for Peter, what changed Peter from a self-preserving coward into a flock-tending shepherd was the experience that Peter had with the gospel of Jesus. You see, Peter saw the hope when he saw the resurrected Jesus. Peter saw the glory. Peter saw Jesus being risen from the dead. And it was that realization that the gospel is true and Jesus, who he says he is, that turned doubting Peter into dutiful Peter. And while there's only one Peter in the scope of scripture, there are thousands of men that God has called to lead his church in the same way he called Peter. And he's called them through the gospel. That's how Jesus calls the men in his church to lead. And Peter's written this whole letter, if you remember where we started in 1 Peter, he's written it to churches who are in exile, churches who are scattered, churches who are facing persecution in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And that's because... God has designed Christians to exist as churches. Church is just this Greek word which means assemblies. Christians don't exist as lone rangers scattered around living in the woods like it's doomsday. Christians exist gathering as God's saints to celebrate and to worship. And here we see that while God has planned churches to gather, God has also given elders to pastor and rule over these assemblies. And we see this when uh, Peter, Paul is writing to Titus and he says this 
to his disciples. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so here's Paul, who's like this missionary, and he's going and planting churches. And then he has Titus, who's going after him. And instead of just letting these churches be churches, he's saying, you need to help make sure these churches are being led well. You need to appoint elders. You need to appoint pastors. You need to appoint shepherds. And so here we see that the installment of elders and pastors is something that Paul is concerned about, but it's not just a human thing. I love the words um, that Paul uses in the book of Acts, where we see this, Acts 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention. So Paul is writing to the elders in Ephesus, and look at what he's saying to the elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And so here we see Paul saying two things that are really important. One, God passionately cares about the assembly of his people. God shed his blood to establish the church. And then also the Holy Spirit has appointed elders in that church. And so when you think of churches, there's this cosmic thing of Christ purchasing the church and the Holy Spirit equipping men to lead those churches. And so the question is, when you think of the gospel implications on your life, and you think of the church, do you think of God's goodness to you in the structure of the local church? It sounds weird that we should look at how God has organized and led our churches and be thankful. But this was a big thing for God. So big that he sent his son to die for it. So powerful that he sent his Holy Spirit to empower it. And you see what drives our reactions against the church and against church leadership structures is the abusive power that we've all seen, Right? How many times have you run into someone who says, yeah, but the church hurts people and here's X, Y, and Z as an example. You see, organized religion is a bad word because it stands to represent greedy gain and unwarranted power. But the thing that I find interesting is if there were any two people who would be opposed to the formalized structure of the church, wouldn't it be Peter and Paul? I mean, here's Peter warring against this Jewish church at the time, going and preaching to them and getting run out of towns because he's trying to convince them that Jesus is the Christ, that the Messiah has come and this church is only hostile towards him and amazingly powerful. And then there's Paul, who knows firsthand because he was a part of it, the kind of persecution and power a big organized religious unit can wield. And yet these two men are the two men who speak most frequently about the structure of church and scripture. As you see the things that Peter calls the elders to do in 1 Peter 5, verses 2 through 3. What do elders do? This is what he says. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And so Peter calls elders. So this is when we're studying the Bible, we want to look at stuff like this. We want to be able to pull it out. Peter calls elders to do three things here in this text. And if you're looking at your Bible, you can maybe see that. Or if it's up on the screen, he calls them to shepherd the church. He calls them to oversee the church. And he calls them to live in as, as an example to the church. And it's interesting because he gives these three positive commands. But then for each of these commands, he gives a negative, something they should not do. 
And each of these commands that Peter's prohibiting are the things that people respond poorly towards, or things which harm the church, the things which, which we don't want. Pastors are not to lead the church because they have to. Pastors and elders are to lead the church because Jesus has called them to. They're accepting something that, that God is doing and calling them to do for their joy. Elders are to oversee and govern the church, but not for greedy personal gain or in order to create a platform for their own agenda. And instead, they're to oversee eagerly for the benefit of the whole church. And this is where Christians are separate from cult leaders. Cult leaders are so obsessed with their own gain. They're obsessed with their own position. They're obsessed with their own power. But elders are obsessed with the power of Jesus. Elders want to take the affection of people and not attach it to themselves or to their own agenda or to a political cause, but to attach it to the cause of Jesus. It's a good thing that they are like that, that they are passionate for something over and above themselves. And additionally, Peter says elders are not to domineer over their church. You've all perhaps heard stories of men who sinfully abuse and domineer their authority inside the church, but this is not what the church stands to do. Instead, Peter says you're to lead by example. As one pastor said, elders are not to be cowboys driving the flock from behind, but shepherds walking on ahead. That's why I love that weight of the shepherding role. Shepherds care. Shepherds are tender. Shepherds lay down their life. Shepherds have a vested interest. And so when we see these things, what does this matter to you? Here we are as college students talking about elders and church structures. And here we are, GCF is part of a church, but this is not a church service. This is not what we would qualify as a church. So why does this matter? It matters because who would have a problem with any of these things that Peter just described? Who would look at those things and say, I would never want to be around somebody who does those things. I would never want to be a part of an organization where people lead by example and do not domineer over you. No one. Those are things we want from our friends. Those are things we want from our bosses. Those should be things we want from our churches. So here's the question. We see these qualifications and we've seen hurt. I think hurt gets way blown out of proportion inside the church, but it's still real. People have gotten hurt by the church. How do you make sure that your churches meet this standard? How do you find a good church? And that's because the number one thing you want to look for in an elder board is an elder board captivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at what he says in 1 Peter 5, verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You see, the passion of biblical elders, the joy of gospel-centered pastors is the glory of Christ as the caretaker of the church, that Jesus is the chief shepherd. True elders realize that this isn't their church, these aren't their people, but they are stewards and caretakers. Jesus is the ultimate shepherd, the one who leads softly but firmly, the one who governs justly but for the good of all, and the one who led by example, loving all by laying down his life to save men and to glorify God. True elders 
work and labor with all of the tenacity God has given them, but they also rest faithfully knowing that it is God's church and God's people. This is why this is important for you, because you're in college. The majority of you, out of 20, 30 people in here, you're probably going to not be in Missoula the rest of your life. You're going to grow up. You guys are going to grow up. It's going to be so cute. You guys are going to graduate. You're going to move away. And you're going to be faced with the decision of finding a new church. And you will find churches which seem to promote freedom. Freedom to choose what it is you want to believe. Freedom to love a Jesus of your own choosing. Freedom to do whatever it is you set your mind to do as long as you remember to talk about Jesus while you're doing it. But don't be deceived. Men in churches who compromise or are unconcerned with the gospel of Jesus Christ do not care for you. Because apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is no care for you. And this is why I am so blessed to be an elder at a church where I get to labor with seven other men who love Jesus and they not only want to care for you, they want to care for me as a fellow elder. I have been served so deeply and so wonderfully by the elders at our church because what they obsess over and what they get up in the morning to do is to see the goodness of God and the gospel of God in the life of the church. They're men who, like Peter, see the glory of Jesus with great clarity And like Paul, they seek to pour themselves out for the good of the church. You see, a lot of people, and this isn't, Sovereign Hope's not the only church that has elders that care. There are lots of great churches with elders who care about it. But what makes elders great is they see what Paul says of being poured out like a drink offering for people. And there are in our church and there are in churches uh, across Missoula and across America, elders who are so driven by the gospel that they will make career decisions and financial decisions for the sake of the church. Non-vocational elders, guys who work for heating companies, guys who are doctors, guys who are contractors, but who will make decisions which hurt their pocketbook and hurt their potential careers because they're elders in the church and they want to love it and serve it. They will lay down their lives for the sake of the church. You see, the beauty of being on staff at a church and being involved in a church is that in the Bible, I get to hear and read the qualifications of elders. But in the life of the church, I get to see the elders. And in so doing, I get to see the gospel care in action. I see a greater picture of the gospel because I've been served by men who want to serve with the gospel. And I want that influence in my life. I want that reminder. In fact, I need that reminder. And this is where Peter goes next. While elders have a weighty task of caring for Jesus' church before Jesus comes back, Peter then goes on to talk to you guys specifically. In 1 Peter 5, 5, says this, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, inside the church, Elders are called to be servant leaders, but inside the church, young people are called to be humble servants. And Peter gets straight to it here, and he emphasizes three things. Humility, pride, and submission. And this is the second point tonight, where elders have this great burden. You, as a young person, we're going to look at young people and the humble grace. 
And Peter cuts straight to it here. He's not mincing his words. He's not making this sound palatable for us. He says, you young people, be subject to your elders. Man, don't we almost hate every single word in that sentence? (laughs) Because this assumes a lot. One, it assumes there are people older than us who potentially have the ability to look down on us. And two, it assumes and implies that we are already involved and committed to a local church. You see, going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Don't be deceived that because you go to church, you're going to end up in heaven. But Christians have a compelling reason to go to church. God's church, as we said, God shed his blood for it. It is therefore a good and great thing for us. The author of Hebrews says, uh, he says, do not neglect meeting together. Paul says in Colossians that in meeting, you'll be strengthened. You'll be encouraged. You'll be blessed. And here Peter says that when you gather at a church with faithful elders, you're submitting to a church that wants to care for you, wants to love you, wants to support you, and wants to worship Jesus with you. And look at what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13 verse 17. Talking to the people in the church, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You see, elders are concerned about your soul. Elders value your affection for Jesus. Elders value and treasure your eternal destiny. Elders want you to worship Jesus in spirit and in truth. So why, again, if we looked at these qualities, if we looked at what Jesus did to purchase the church, If we look at the benefit we saw in Hebrews, why wouldn't we want to do this? Why would we struggle with it? Why would there still be tension in our hearts regarding church? Peter makes it clear. Pride. Pride opposes this. And don't get me wrong. No church is perfect. There's going to be sin in any church until we gather as the church in heaven one day when Jesus has defeated death and sin permanently. And there are Christians who fail to get plugged into a church or who leave a church because they've been hurt. They've been hurt by sin. But more times than not, Christians that leave the church because of that, they leave because of their own sin of pride. I was this guy. I was the guy who was all angsty about the church, who thought we could be doing it better, who thought organized religion was ruining everything because they've lost touch with a generation and they're not dialoguing with people. I, was, I thought the church was full of hypocrites. And you've heard that line, it's just white noise to our culture, right? That is the most, someone says a church is full of hypocrites and it is the most like, I just want to throw up in my mouth because show me a place that isn't, right? We all say, well, the church is full of people who have sin and act like they don't, but the world is full of people who are really real with their sin. Yeah, and they celebrate it. That's not any better. (laughs) Gospel-centered churches look at their own sin and are real about it, but then they also seek to move on from it and not live in it and not celebrate something which is harmful to humanity. And I was that guy. I thought I knew what was best. I thought I could be my own authority. I thought that the only person who wasn't a hypocrite was me, and that proved how fatal my point was. You see, the church is full of hypocrites because the church is full of sinners. But what allows sinners to get along together is the grace the gospel provides. This is why humility is absolutely necessary to make the church of Jesus work. 
Humility is absolutely necessary to make GCF work. We can't submit to a church if we're arrogant of our need. If we don't think we need help, if we don't think we need the church, we're not going to seek it out. We're not going to use it. We're not going to treasure it. But more importantly than that, we can't forgive people when they sin against us unless we humbly see how much Jesus has forgiven us when we've sinned against him. You see, the unfortunate side effect of being young, I realize this just even as being a young pastor, is that I like experience. And experience is often what beats pride out of you. In our inexperience, we can harbor haughty hearts. It leaves room for a lot of pride. And this is serious. Look at how the Bible talks about pride. Psalm 138, verse 6. The psalmist says this, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. But the haughty, that's the prideful, he knows from afar. So God desires to come to those who are low, but those who are prideful and arrogant, God will only know from afar. God has no desire to be with them. They are offensive to him. They are repugnant, 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 repugnant to him. He wants nothing to do with them. Proverbs 11, verse 12, 11, 2 says this, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Humility brings wisdom and pride brings disgrace. You see, we have to hold on to this tension of the passage that Peter is writing here. He's writing about, that's why this series is called This Next Life. He's holding the balance between our present life and our future hope. And he makes it abundantly clear. If you claim to have the future hope of Jesus Christ and the present salvation of Jesus Christ, you will not be able to do it alone. You might think you can. You might have moments of strength, moments of wonderful solitude and isolation. But remember the passages we've looked at before this. Suffering, 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 suffering. Your circumstances and your trials will expose arrogance as a fatal weakness in your faith. And the first step to getting over this is humility to see the humbling gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, none of you will become more humble by going to the humble gym. You can't do it. You can't become more humble. You are humbled. You're humbled in response to something. You're humbled by something which happens outside of you, which reveals the cosmic difference between that event and who you are. You're humbled when you realize that you need help. You're humbled when you realize you need an authority. And we are humbled when we encounter the gospel because we were dead in sin and we could do nothing and did nothing to save us. But Jesus, being rich in mercy, became like us, died for us, and now lives in us. And a gospel this big cannot reside in an arrogant heart. They're incompatible with one another because we see the need of humility. We needed the help of Jesus to be saved because we could never be saved if Jesus didn't humbly serve us. But we also need the help and grace of others to live like we are saved in the rest of this life. That's why the author of Hebrews says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, let us run with perseverance the race 
marked out for us. You see, this freedom, this cloud of witnesses, this life together, this mini portion of what the church is, is the freedom which comes from a life organized around Jesus. And there is nothing resentful or hurtful about that. You see, the chef I mentioned earlier, he saw a glory which was attractive to him. And in the gospel, we have more than fancy cars and elegant living. We have the promise of salvation, of satisfaction, and of eternity spent in the glory of God. And our response to that event is faith and belief. But then God in his goodness hasn't left us with just that. To help protect that faith and assure that belief, God has given us the church where we can pursue glory together. Christianity, if done on your own, will leave you with either an incomplete view of the gospel or of yourself, or it will leave you with a heart which feels cut off from life, isolated and alone. And this is why GCF is part of Sovereign Hope Church. We are under an elder board and we submit to that. This morning, I was up at 5.30 this morning for an elder meeting. There were eight men who the majority of you have never met outside of me praying for you to be here in this room tonight. Praying that God would bring salvation on campus. Praying that you would have a clear understanding of the gospel. Praying that the sufferings and hardships and persecution you might know in your life doesn't shake the gospel from you, but only establishes you more and more in your faith. And that is a beautiful thing. That is a thing I want for you. That is a thing I want for me. That is a thing I want for my own children. And so here's what I want you guys to do. A lot of times I don't have a specific, really narrow point of application for you, but I do today. Because Peter is writing specifically to you and his command is be subject to your elders. And so I want you to consider something in conclusion. I want you to pursue the grace Peter's talking about. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you want the grace of God, if you want more strength, if you want more help, if you want more security, if you want more counsel, if you want more love, if you want more gospel in your life, I want you to think about pursuing that means that Peter prescribed. I want you to think about becoming a member at a local church. Obviously, we're a part of Sovereign Hope Church. We have a membership process that is great. It's called Held to Glory, and it's, it's holds you to that glory that Peter's talking about. But I, and we'd love that. If you want to become a member at Sovereign Hope, we want to walk that with you. Membership is just saying, I want to be a Christian. I want you to treat me like a Christian. I want you to help me live like a Christian, and I'm not going to let you let me walk away. I'm not just going to drift away. I want your help in this. There are other churches that I know people in here are involved in. That's great. But I want you to pursue submitting to that church. To, to give that church a step in your life so that they can do that elderding, so that they might shepherd you, so that they might oversee you, that they might be an example to you. And I promise you that this is what's good for you. That of the influences in your life, in terms of what humans can do, there'll probably be no stronger influence in your life than the local church that you submit to because they're passionate about the glory of God. They're passionate about your salvation. They're passionate about caring for you and loving you. And so as GCF, we gather as a part of a church. We get encouragement here. We get teaching here. But there's something greater that God can offer you. And that encourages you in evangelism, 
in discipleship and in your own faith to the glory of God. So let's pray and let's consider that this week. Lord, you say that uh, you have led a host of captives and given gifts to them. And so, Lord, in our salvation, you've given us gifts, and those gifts are meant to be used in the context of the local church. And, Lord, we thank you that you have given us a church which is passionate about college ministry. Lord, that we have uh, elders that make financial costs and decisions for our church so that we can meet here. And we pray that beyond meeting here, that we might know the beauty of God and the gospel of God by submitting ourselves to men in churches who are passionate for making sure we keep that priority, the eternal priority. Lord, I pray that as a group of young people in here, you strip away our pride and self-righteousness and you help us to love you and serve others by humbly submitting first to your call in the gospel and second to your call to be part of a local church. We love you, Lord. We thank you that we do not need to be scared of organized religion because God has organized our heart around the gospel and that is what is best for us today. We pray this in your name. Amen.